This is the Ultimate Learning History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 132, the fourth part of the story about Frank Hart, who was the Jackie Robinson of 19th century ultra running. He broke the color barrier and fought racism with his feet and sometimes his fists. This multi-part series is a slimmed-down version of Hart's amazing life. To read the entire history, get my new book on Amazon, Frank Hart, The First Black Ultra-Running Star. Search for Frank Hart, H-A-R-T, on Amazon. My third book in the Ultra-Running History series is now available on Amazon, Strange Running Tales, When Running Was a Reality Show. Stories include fistfights on the track, strange hallucinations experienced while trying to run for six straight days, love scandals, corruption and bribery that crept into the sport, sickness, death, and even murder. Get Strange Running Tales on Amazon. After three years as a professional pedestrian, Frank Hart's life in 1883 was at a low point. He had blown through his riches, and his reputation as a professional pedestrian was tarnished. He was viewed as being hot-headed, undisciplined, and a womanizer. His wife and children were no longer being mentioned as being a part of his life, and by then were likely gone. Many people had tried to help him, even his original mentor, Daniel O'Leary, who called him ungrateful. Trainers did not last long working with him. He was no longer referred to by the flattering title of Black Dan. Some of the criticism against him was because of racial stereotypes, which he fought hard against. He wanted to regain the glory and fame he had felt in previous years. To make things worse, he had a young woman, Fanny Nixon, arrested, accusing her of stealing a diamond ring from him valued at $526. The press was quick to point out that a black man was accusing a white woman, unheard of at the time. She had met him at his 1880 world record race at Madison Square Garden, and they developed a relationship. He claimed that the night before he left for England in 1881, she had stolen the ring from his vest pocket. She countered that he had given it to her as a gift before he left. She admitted that she later sold it to a pawnbroker for $250. The court released her on bail, and apparently the case was soon dismissed or settled. On November 8, 1883, Hart left Boston to travel to California for the first time. Money in pedestrian contests was becoming harder to find, and it was hoped that the West Coast would deliver. He was invited to compete in a six-day race in San Francisco with Daniel O'Leary and two Californians, Charles A. Harriman and Peter McIntyre. It was called a four-cornered match. The East Coast's team would go against the West Coast team. Hart received a grand reception in California and became an instant celebrity. San Francisco wrote, Hart the Negro pedestrian is coming to the city. He will be given a reception by the colored people. He was met at the ferry landing by a band and escorted to the Pacific Life newspaper rooms 
where he was given a banquet. But Hart, wanting even more attention, characterized himself as a wealthy lawyer. An article was printed stating that he was a member of the Boston Bar. Owing to an unfortunate stutter, Hart is a poor pleader, but his opinions on legal matters are sought for that he is able to hire a pleader to present his ideas in the court. The lawyer news surprised the Boston Globe, and it implied that the claim was fiction. He also stretched the truth of his recent six-day accomplishments, claiming that he held the current world record. The New York sportsman got wind of Hart's lawyer profession claim, and a correction was later printed in a San Francisco newspaper. The New York editor wrote, Hart may be a great lawyer. We have never heard him plead for other than a release from a creditor. Before reading the story of Hart's great ability as a lawyer, we thought his fame rested chiefly on his reputation as a pedestrian and a womanizer. The San Francisco four-cornered race began right after midnight on November 21, 1883, in Mechanics Pavilion. At the end of day four, the match was tight. Hart had a one-mile lead with 370 miles and his team score with O'Leary led by only five miles. A gossip paper wrote, Hart has nearly all the time from two to a half dozen white female visitors in his tent, and on the track, he is the frequent recipient of laurel offering from a fair sex. One lady tossed him a bunch of violets as he was walking by. The parties became fast friends. Hart reached 500 miles for both the individual and team win. The event was financially successful for Hart. He stayed in California, challenging people for matches and putting on exhibitions at carnivals. William Muldoon was a Greco-Roman wrestling champion who won the world championship in 1880. He was a veteran of two wars, a New York cop, a Broadway actor, and the first celebrity trainer. But most importantly, he was the toughest wrestler of the 1880s, William Muldoon. Starting in 1883, he toured America promoting athletic events. In early 1884, he announced he was going to sponsor a great six-day race in San Francisco's Mechanics Pavilion. Runners could win a package prize of $2,000. To make the event even more interesting, he announced that he would have a mystery runner in the race, Muldoon's unknown, who would compete against Hart. The identity of the runner would not be revealed until race day, but wagers could be made on his unknown. The great pedestrian promoter and sports writer, Frank J. Englehart, who helped Hart get his start in the sport and cross the racial barrier, was the manager of the event. On January 14, 1884, the race started with 10 entrants. John Dobler of Chicago turned out to be Muldoon's unknown. Despite all the marketing, attendance was rather poor. Hart reached 100 miles in 1945 and was in first place with 115 miles on the first day. The gas was turned down low and the band in attendance was composed of so few pieces as to hardly fill the hall from end to end with the sound of music. Is there anybody out there? Dobler became stiff and sore and fell well behind. The unknown is not only unknown, but rapidly becoming invisible. On day four, Hart had a sore toe 
and plan to have the toenail, quote, amputated. That's disgusting! And lost the lead to Charles A. Harriman. On the final day, the race was very close, with an exciting finish. With three hours to go, Hart pushed ahead and won with 487 miles, only two miles ahead of Harriman. Now a California celebrity, Hart toured around the state. He competed in a 10-mile bike race where he was characterized as a, quote, expert cyclist. He only lasted seven miles. Next, he rode in a 26-mile bicycle race at the Mechanics Pavilion. The colored champion pedestrian spun around the track, doubled up in such a manner as to indicate that the third vertebrae of his spine had dropped out. He reached 169 miles in last place and said he would stick to traveling on foot. Hart left California and headed back east to get ready for the next big race in Madison Square Garden at the end of April 1884. After two weeks, people were puzzled why he hadn't arrived yet and assumed that he was training on the way back. Hart's New York friends had sent him $175 to pay for his expenses to travel back from California, and they too didn't know what was going on. He was assigned a hut for the race, but was a no-show as the start approached. Where was Hart? It turned out that he stopped in Denver, Colorado to put together a lucrative match to be held there later in the month. He sent word to the New York race management that he was in Chicago and had joined a semi-pro, quote, colored baseball team. He claimed that he had been hired to play shortstop on the Black Stockings in St. Louis, Missouri. Hart never played for the St. Louis Black Stockings and instead continued in professional pedestrianism. There was no mention of him being on the team as the season took place during the summer and fall of 1884 as they were competing for the championship. Instead, he was away, very busy, running in races. On July 7, 1884, Hart competed in a six-day match in Chicago put on by O'Leary at the Battery D Armory. It turned out to be a terrible fiasco. Hart quit the race after 58 miles, claiming that he was not being scored fairly. His nemesis, John Hughes, later went on a tirade, causing a, quote, free-for-all fight on the track. The police had to break it up. The police sent pedestrian Daniel Burns of Elmira, New York, to jail and gave Hart 24 hours to leave the city. Even though he was leading, Hughes quit the race, asserting that it was fixed and that the scores were not being properly recorded. He claimed that George Normack assaulted him, and his wife and child were assaulted as he was being driven from the track. O'Leary denounced Hughes' statement as a lie. He said Hughes was a chronic kicker and had been barred from walking matches all over the country. He started the fight, and two of his friends tried to help him, and they were arrested. In August 1884, Hart put on a 25-mile exhibition in Springfield, Ohio, but was, quote, deeply disgusted because only a dozen spectators came out. 
He quit after going only 12 miles. Many thought him a counterfeit of the genuine heart, but he walked enough to show that he was a professional. During 1885, there was only a handful of six-day races held. Hart looked for other endurance sports to win money. William Wood, the secretary of the New York Athletic Club, announced a six-day roller skating tournament was to be held from March 2nd to 8th, 1885 at Madison Square Garden in February 1885. See episode 82. Champion skaters signed up to compete, and the field including some pedestrians. The winner would receive $500 and a diamond belt valued at $250. The event turned out to be an embarrassment for Hart. Very few of the contestants appeared in good training, and Frank Hart, the pedestrian, seemed almost unused to the skates. He lifts his skates as if they were snowshoes, and seems to imagine that all he has to do is put his foot on the floor and he will go ahead. After 10 hours, he was in dead last, with only 29 miles. But he kept trying. Late in the first day, it was reported. He was crawling around the track, reminding one of a 16-year-old maiden, making her first venture as a roller skater. His skating gait was so odd that the other skaters gave him a wide berth when they came near. He finally quit on day two after 123 miles. His old trainer, Happy Jack Smith, handled William Donovan, age 18, the eventual winner with 1,092 miles. Donovan died only a month after his victory due to exhaustion and pneumonia. In 1885, it was reported that Hart had squandered $50,000 that he had earned over the past five years. That was worth about $1.5 million today. He seemed to never have a home and likely lived in posh hotels as he traveled around the country. Hello, I like money. In November, Hart returned to Boston after being away for two and a half years. Clearly, he had abandoned his family, who were still living there. His loyalty to Boston had wavered. In one race, he listed his residence as Bradford, Pennsylvania. After participating in several 1885 races in the New York area and winning little money, it was announced that for the next year, he had allied with Charles A. Harriman in a team called the Harriman and Hart Pedestrian Team. They were an interesting pair. Hart was short and thick, and Harriman was tall and slender. They planned to barnstorm Pennsylvania in 1886, go to California, and then on a three- to four-year trip to Australia. Things got off to a rough start. In January 1886 at Elmira, New York, they were barred from the race because fellow veteran pedestrians refused to let them start. The objection seemed to be because of their alliance and the potential for shady tactics. For the next few months in 1886, they competed in several 75-hour races in cities across Pennsylvania. With this three-day format, they could do a race every other week, rather than a once-a-month six-day race. It was also about trying to make a lucrative living. Even so, running over 200 miles in each of those races took a toll. So they put on weekly 51-hour races, covering over 150 miles. 
Hart certainly was piling up the 100-mile-plus finishes with about 35 thus far in his career. But these Pennsylvania races had problems because of dishonest managers who didn't pay bills, and at the time, they were boring events for spectators watching worn-out runners. After one race, it was written, All parties were disgusted with the contest. Hart's reputation was no longer great. He was referred to as, quote, ex-champion. The alliance with Harriman only lasted about four months, and by June 1886, the Pennsylvania barnstorming tour ended. Hart disappeared from the sport for several months, visited Hawaii, but reappeared in October 1886, quote, grown heavy. He competed in his first six-day match in over two years, a 12-hour-per-day race in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was focused on placing high enough to earn winnings, but on day five, after 280 miles, he quit. His trainer followed with an anxious face, and the audience soon learned that he would not return. His face had been haggard, and his step feeble for the last 24 hours. Stretched upon a cot in his tent, covered with heavy blankets, he said, I'm done for. There's no use in my keeping on. I know I cannot take a place. Since it seemed like Hart couldn't win money in races anymore, he went into the race organizing business. His first was a six-day, 12-hours-per-day, 72-hour race put on at the Columbia Skating Rink in Boston on November 1, 1886. The race went well, but Hart quit after 205 miles because of bowel issues. Gus Guerrero won with 404 miles. Hart's greed and lack of business sense got him in big trouble. After the race, he was charged with confiscating funds from Edward Grant, who served as the manager of the race. Hart was stunned when he was arrested in front of his hotel. He said he paid the manager, the band, and the rink owner, leaving $414 for himself. He stated Grant and the others wanted to exclude him from the profits. He said, This is my reason for keeping the money, as I am not going to be played for a fool any longer. But the biggest problem was that Hart was supposed to share the profits with the top finishers of the event, and he did not. The police held him for an hour, but determined the matter was for a civil court, not a criminal court. After they released him, he said he was determined to keep the money. He quickly left Boston and was criticized in the press for, quote, leaving the walkers in a rather poor financial condition. His reputation in the sport took yet another big hit. Hart's despicable greed and behavior appalled the Boston public. He had finally burned bridges with his hometown. They organized a grand benefit for the race winner, Gus Guerrero, to raise deserved money for him that Hart had run off with. People attended the event, full of running exhibitions, and it was a great success. A month later, it was reported, Frank Hart, who is called the Lazy Colored Pedestrian, says he will enter legal proceedings against a Boston paper for publishing his portrait and placarding him as a thief. He threatened to sue for $20,000 and started to claim Fall River, Massachusetts as his home. 
He resented being called lazy, especially by men who had never tried to run hundreds of miles. In late February 1887, Hart, now aged 30, competed at a huge six-day race in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with many of the greatest ultra-runners of that time, even Gus Guerrero, whom Hart had recently swindled. John Hughes, Hart's racist nemesis, was also there. Hughes harangued the crowd and said all he wanted was fair play. He kept up his ill temper until the starting time. Then he went outside the building and did not return. Hart still had speed and completed the first mile in first in 6 minutes and 10 seconds. But Guerrero soon overtook him. In this highly competitive race, after day one, Hart was in fourth place with 103 miles and after day two in second with 201. He finally had a good race again and held on to second place after day three with 289 miles and 367 miles after day four. On day five, it was reported, Hart is still the freshest man on the tan bar, and his walk is without the slightest trace of a limp. In the end, Hart finished in second place with 518 miles, 12 miles behind Robert Vint, an Irish-American and shoemaker from Brooklyn, New York. Hart won a much-needed $2,000, but he was a sore loser. Hart is a little disgusted at not winning first money, and claims it was the fault of his trainer who would not allow him to cover enough ground on the first two days. Hart competed successfully in Nebraska and after a win was given a huge reception. His reputation was improving until he organized a six-day match against Harriman in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in September 1887. Hart was up to his old tricks again. W.A. Gregg, who was officiating as Hart's trainer, claims Hart skipped out on Sunday without paying his bills, among them being one due to Greg for his service. Greg says that all people ought to be warned against Hart. In November, at a highly competitive six-day race in Philadelphia, Hart tried to keep up with the new ultra-running sensation, George Littlewood of England. On day one, Hart burned himself out and had to drop out after 118 miles. Littlewood won with an amazing 569 miles. Hart closed out 1887 by disappointing Lancaster, Pennsylvania in not showing up for their race. He sent a letter letting them know he was ill, but that was a lie. Instead, he competed that same week in a more lucrative race in Kansas City, Missouri, where he placed second with 429 miles. In February 1888, Hart competed in another historic international six-day race held in Madison Square Garden with 47 starters. The field included five athletes of color, Hart, Edward Williams, Marriott Stout, the, quote, Arabian, a painter from New York City, William Burrell of Chicago, and Fields. Hart was no longer a feared champion, but still respected as one to watch out for. At the start, the old Madison Square Garden, planned for demolishment, was packed, quote, as full as a sausage case, with about 12,000 people. 
they constructed a spectacular bridge over the track for those who wanted to access the field that contained a lemonade booth and a newspaper stand. Other attractions were knife-throwing boards, baseball targets, cane racks, and places to buy railroad sandwiches, sawdust pie, soda water, popcorn, candy, fruit, and a bar with 100 bartenders dealing out beer. Cries of drop a nickel in the slot caught the people curious of their own weight, their lifting powers, and the strength of their lungs, and those who were partial to tutti-frutti chewing gum. There were 150 scorers hired for shifts. Callers shouted out the number of the runner as they passed under the wire, identified by a black card on their chest. There were mistakes with so many runners. Hughes, as usual, complained that he was being shortchanged two miles. Others, including Hart, stopped at the scorer stand to protest strongly. The scorers, under Edward Plummer's leadership, threatened to quit if they were not left alone and not allowed to take breakfast breaks. A fight occurred on the first day, and for once, Hughes and Hart were not involved. Robert Vint didn't like John Dempsey, a boxer, dogging his heels and hitting them. Vint got a blow in the mouth from Dempsey's fist, bringing blood. Dempsey called Vint a name which he didn't take kindly to. Vint dislocated his thumb from a punch. Another disruption occurred on the track. Policeman Creighton essayed to suppress a one-legged boy of 14 years old, but the boy refused to leave the path of the men, and when the policeman attempted to take him out of the garden, the boy fought him using his crutch for a weapon. The rebellious lad was locked up. Hart covered 75 miles in 12 hours, 130 miles in 24 hours, and 226 miles on day two. Hart, the cheerful colored boy, was the cleanest and most unconcerned of the 20 men left on the track. He was in no hurry, but kept going. He reached 313 miles on day three, 393 miles on day four in fifth place. In the end, he reached a very remarkable 546 miles for fourth place. James Albert from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, broke the six-day world record with 621 miles. Hart had now witnessed the breaking of the world record five times. In this race, eight men went over 525 miles. Hart won about $2,500. Frank Hart was a badly used up winner. He was hoarse and trembling. He denies that he was lazy and says that no lazy man would ever go into the six-day business. He is to leave it and expects to be appointed a Philadelphia policeman or go into the business there. Hart once made a fortune as a champion walker, but enjoyed life too well to keep it. He and others believed strongly that the race manager Hall had cheated them, taking too much profit, something that Hart previously had done himself, and thus had no room to complain. He said, There isn't the ghost of a doubt that crooked work was done. He was so upset that he swore he would never enter another race. Stay tuned to see if Hart retires from running. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, 
get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>